I'm Angel, passionate birth worker and podcast host of the Birth Rebel Podcast. I'm bringing you a blend of heart, soul, and a bit of controversy. Join me on my podcast where I dive fearlessly into thought-provoking discussions about the most controversial topics in pregnancy, birth, breastfeeding, and postpartum. I'm unmasking the truths. I'm challenging norms and sparking conversations that matter. Let's celebrate the beauty of the perinatal space while fearlessly confronting the tough questions together. Tune in for guest interviews from health professionals leading the charge into changing the perinatal space and my own expertise in diverse topics. All right, Birth Rebel, let's jump into it. Hi, everyone. It is Angel. I'm your host for the Birth Cafe podcast, and I am really excited about this episode. And I know it's going to be controversial, but I have brought evidence and facts so that if you guys really don't believe me, the evidence is there. But I am also just really excited to bring awareness to this subject because this is a very important subject. So what am I talking about? (laughs) What am I so excited and probably a little bit nervous about? Well, I am going to talk about why I cannot ethically promote formula feeding and fetish best rhetoric. This is a controversial topic. It really, really is. But you know what? Let's talk about it. It needs to be talked about. We need to understand why this is a problem when we're promoting formula feeding. And this is not to shame anyone. And I'm going to go into all of that. But why? Why do I feel this? Why do I feel this way? Well, The promotion of formula when it's not medically indicated is actually very harmful. And that's kind of what I'm going to be talking about in this podcast is how it affects infants in a way that we really, we need to bring to light and stop trying to shove it, you know, under the rug and say like, it's fine. Like everything is fine. Everything's on fire, but it's fine. (laughs) And so that is kind of what I wanted to talk about. Now, being an advocate for breastfeeding doesn't necessarily mean that I am anti-formula. And hearing me say I can't ethically support formula may cause a bit of a stir. However, let me state that I know and realize that there are reasons to use formula. Now, I don't promote formula because of an ethical responsibility, both professionally, also personally, I feel like it's wrong to do. However, I am and I still do educate moms on the safe use of formula if they personally choose to do so. And I have done that. And I've worked with moms who decide to do both or just formula. And I educate moms on how to best do that. Now, this is what I do if a mom personally chooses to do that. So I am not anti-formula. I have used formula for my children. However, 
I am against the formula companies and their practices. I'm against how our government has a play and a part in uh, the promotion of formula feeding and its harmful effects. And I'm against the pediatric organizations that have continuously aided in the poor education and misinformation about breastfeeding. Let me say that I am not here to shame anyone. And I actually brought up the definition of what shaming is according to Webster. So according to Webster, the shaming is the act or activity of subjecting someone to shame, disgrace, humiliation, or disrepute, especially by a public exposure or criticism. Now, it's not shaming to say that breast milk is best for babies. That's a scientific fact, and that's not going to change. However, it would be shaming to say, if you don't breastfeed, you are a horrible person. <laughs> so I acknowledge that some of this information may be hard to hear and that feelings of guilt may happen, but know that I present this information to educate, bring awareness, and prevent harm to the next generation. We all do what's best with what we know in the current moment. And that goes for moms, birth professionals, dads, grandparents, and other caregivers. However, I want you to use this information to educate the next generation of parents, and it would be unethical to not bring awareness to this topic. And saying that, going into the topic, we have been indoctrinated that formula feeding and bottle feeding are normal in our society. I have other podcasts where I talk about the American philosophy of breastfeeding, and it is normal to formula feed and bottle feed, and breastfeeding here in America is the exception. It's the exception to breastfeed. We are so indoctrinated in this idea it's in the toy baby dolls. When you go and buy a baby doll for your niece, for your daughter, for a, a friend, friend's child, it's the babies always come with a bottle of milk, right? It's in the movies about babies. When you watch movies and TV shows and the moms are feeding their babies, more than likely they are being fed with a bottle. It's also in the baby decorations. Now, I actually have an upcoming podcast coming out um, in the next few weeks with Laurel Wilson, and we actually talk a little bit more about the indoctrinization of formula feeding in our society. It is all around us. Uh, the marketing of formula is in the media, just in everything from movies to TV shows um, to news articles to buying baby items right? When you buy a baby card, it has a bottle on it. Some of the clothes have bottles on it, right? So it's all around us. It's been told to us by our society, by the media, that this is normal. And if you think the media has no influence over what you do, <laughs> think again. So one of the first things that I wanted to talk about was the formula marketing practices and the WHO code. All right. And so the code, if you've never heard of it, it is the WHO code of breast milk substitutes, um, where they talk a lot about 
proper marketing of formula and other breast milk substitutes like bottles. And so the code was formulated in response to the realization that poor infant feeding practices were negatively affecting the growth and development and health of children and were a major cause of mortality in infants and young children. Um, these poor infant feeding practices were a serious obstacle to social and economic development. And so I'm actually gonna bring up uh, a La Leche League article that talks about what's in the Who Code. So what products does the Who Code cover? It covers formula milks, any food or drinks marketed for babies under six months. And you'll be surprised that even baby food is marketed for babies under six months. They shouldn't really be doing that. <laughs> Commercial baby foods are drinks that do not meet global and national standards marketed for babies and toddlers and young children six to 36 months, bottles, teats, or nipples. Okay, so that is a little bit about what is covered in the code. So what else? It talks about labeling. It talks about who is supposed to be following the code as well. So these are just some of the, the things that the code goes over. So what is allowed under the code? So the use of formula and the safe preparation of it, it talks about that. Um, it also talks a little bit about the language that's used in it, the sale of products with technical information, uh, making sure that it's scientific and factual information for healthcare professionals, accurate information on safe formula preparation, and it's that is required on all labels. Now, what is not allowed under the code? Promotions to parents, health professionals or in healthcare facilities, so advertising, free supplies of formula or free samples, gifts and posters, health claims not substantiated by scientific evidence, like saying it promotes excellent visual development, promotion of unsuitable products for babies, such as sweetened condensed milk, and then donations of formula or feeding equipment in emergencies, instead of cash donations for local agencies to support families. Now that's something that I definitely did see during you know, all of this Ukraine and Russian war is that people were talking about how they wanted to send formula to these countries. When, when they're going through a crisis like that, that's actually not gonna be helpful for them. And we're gonna talk about that in a minute. So who follows the code? You'll be interested to know that a lot of countries have taken this code and have put it into the law of the land. However, the United States has not incorporated this in the law of the land. In fact, when this was presented and they were voting on it, the United States was the only country to vote against the WHO code. So isn't that interesting, right? Um, there are a lot of different countries that took on this code, but the United States was not one of them. They actually voted against the code. Fascinating. Very, very fascinating. <laughs> All right. If your heads are not spinning yet, I actually wanted to share this video that I got, um, that I watched on YouTube, um, where they talk about the Nestle baby formula scandal. So if you don't know anything about Nestle, Nestle 
has a really long history of doing things that they probably not and not even probably but things that they really shouldn't do and that are very unethical and morally wrong so we are going to watch this video it's called the nestle baby baby formula scandal the darkest chapter in corporate history and i'm going to link this in the description below in the show notes and i'm also going to link another video with bailey syrian who i absolutely love and adore her videos and she also talks about a lot of the crimes that nestle has committed over the years but for now let's watch or listen listen to this video about the who code by 1977, public disapproval had grown to the point of protests, and in fact, Infant Formula Action Coalition launched a boycott against Nestle and all of its products. A boycott that continues to this day, by the way. Unfortunately, this wasn't enough to make Nestle change their ways, so in 1978, Senator Edward Kennedy took the marketing of baby formula to the Senate. This prompted the WHO and the United Nations Children's Fund to step up and create what would become the International Code of Marketing of Breast Milk Substitutes in 1981, also known as the code. The code prohibits formula companies from promoting products in hospitals, giving free samples, giving gifts to medical professionals, giving misleading information, promoting products designed for babies under six months old, and using misleading images or text. The label must also be written in a language that could be understood by the parents and must include a prominent health warning. The code, while comprehensive, was ultimately voluntary. So did Nestle choose to meet it? Well, initially they agreed, and even stated on their website that they would follow both the letter and the spirit of the code. Unfortunately, they still haven't managed it. The 2014 film Tigers tells the story of Saeed Amir Raza Hussein, a former pharmaceutical salesman who worked for Nestle, visiting hospitals in Pakistan between 1994 and 1997. He resigned when he saw a baby die of diarrhea and dehydration as a result of bottle feeding with the product that he was there to sell. Unfortunately, his attempt to blow the whistle and end their practices with his report milking profits resulted in bribes and threats, and he ended up having to flee the country and leave his young family behind. Several other investigations have since taken place and exposed multiple instances where Nestle's practices were failing to meet the standards they claimed to follow. Multiple products were discovered with labels written in a non-native language, and some labels had instructions in an appropriate language, but warnings only written in English. Other countries found issues with the ingredients themselves. For example, Nestle's product labels in Brazil and Hong Kong advise against giving sucrose to babies, but their South African milks contain it. Other Nestle formulas came to be healthy as they don't contain vanilla flavoring, but then their milk powders in China and South Africa contain vanillin compounds. Nestle has also gotten around the ban on advertising for under six months old by introducing stage two and follow-on milks. These are milks designed for older children, but have been deemed unnecessary by medical professionals. Instead of providing a vital supplement to a child's diet, what they actually do is allow Nestle to advertise their products with almost identical packaging to their first infant formulas worldwide. Private doctors in Bangladesh have also claimed to still be receiving monthly visits from Nestle representatives. This is a country where, according to Save the Children, 314 infant deaths could be prevented every day if breastfeeding rates improved. That's a Breaking into the markets was easy. All Nestle had to do was follow these simple steps. Create a need, convince customers that their product is required to achieve the good life, link their product to desirable and unobtainable concepts, and most importantly, 
provide a free sample. Creating a positive image of infant formula was easy. Billboards were erected, ads were run in papers, and posters were plastered around hospitals with images of a healthy, chubby baby sitting next to a tub of powdered formula. Racism played a huge part in the strategy. The babies were almost always white, with the implication being that all the fashionable Western women were bottle-feeding their babies, so you should too. The real challenge lay in creating the need, though. How could they, as an infant milk company, sabotage the breastfeeding efforts of millions of women in multiple countries? The answer was fear. Nestlé knew that stress and anxiety could reduce, if not stop, lactation altogether, and if they could do that, they'd have their customers locked in. So, how do you scare a bunch of new mothers enough to prevent them from being able to feed their babies? Some attempts were subtle, implying breastfeeding would lead to your breasts sagging, prevent you from working, and make you look poor and uncivilized. Others ditched all attempts at subtlety. Nestle advertised lactogen in Africa for use when breast milk fails, and one of their most famous ads featured the claim, don't wait too long to wean your baby. If you do, the little one is likely to be weak and anemic. Borden Klim produced a radio jingle that went, The child is going to die because the mother's breast is given out. Mama, oh mama, the child cries. If you're While this ability to manipulate demand for their product was a neat ploy, Nestle went one step further and decided to mess with the physiology directly. You see, another handy feature of breast milk is that it stops being produced pretty quickly when it's no longer needed. Nestle realized that if you could interrupt the first days of a newborn mother breastfeeding their baby, they'd find it incredibly difficult to restart their milk supply and essentially be hooked on the product. All Nestle needed was to get them to try a free sample. To do this, they had to get into hospitals and delivery centers and capture their customers in the first few hours after birth. Doctors and physicians were targeted. Nestle sent gifts, notepads, and pens, anything the doctor would use in front of the patients that would indicate their endorsement of the product. Doctors with newborns were supplied with a year's supply of free formula, so other mothers would be convinced of its superiority. Hospitals, too, were flooded with free samples so that formula could be used straight away in the event of any issues. Captive physicians were also quick to recommend it, even in the absence of breastfeeding problems. One stubborn doctor who refused to recommend formula to his patients was even sent a cake on New Year. I'm not sure why anyone in Nestle thought a cake would be a sufficient enticement to convince a doctor to recommend a product that would triple the mortality rate of his patients, but, well, they tried it anyway. Another less obvious and more insane. So I bet that was interesting for some of you guys. <laughs> so I've actually included a link to a podcast about um, the history of formula. And they also go over just the history of breast milk substitutes over the course of all of human existence. And it's really, really interesting. Um, I don't have time to go over the entirety of the history of baby formula, especially with the different companies and things like that. Um, so if you guys really want to hear more about that, or maybe I could do a separate episode on the history of baby formula, please leave a podcast request and let me know that's something that you want to hear. Or you guys can take a look at that episode. So something else that's mentioned in the video that we just listened to was that formula companies actually provide funding and help when they are building hospital layouts. I have an upcoming episode with a friend of mine. Her name is Madison. And we're going to talk a lot about kangarulas and the mother baby dyad and things like that. But one of the things that we did talk about was mother baby NICUs, which are ideal for premature babies when we are talking about increasing breastfeeding rates. 
And I actually mentioned a story where I talk about my personal journey with my premature son and my premature daughter that were born at 31 weeks and how I knew at the time how important it was for premature babies to have breast milk and how even though I had just had a C-section, I wanted to make sure that they had breast milk. But one of the things I had to do just having a C-section and I actually lost quite a bit of blood with my son that I had to get a blood transfusion because I had lost so much blood. But one of the things that I had to go through was walking across the hospital to go deliver my baby his breast milk. Not easy, especially when you just had major abdominal surgery. And it was very uncomfortable, but I just knew how important it was. And it was something that I was willing to do, but it's something that I shouldn't have had to do. We really shouldn't be separating babies, let's be honest. And we're going to talk more about separation and things like that a little bit in this podcast episode, but more in the upcoming episode where I talk about skin to skin. Um, Something that a lot of people may not know is that breastfeeding actually, especially when we're talking about premature babies, it actually increases uh, or decreases their time in the NICU. Uh, so there, these babies, along with skin to skin, when these babies are breastfed, they're they are more likely to get out of the NICU a lot sooner and recover from illnesses a lot faster, and are less likely to have illness while in the NICU. However, uh, something that I actually kind of talk about uh, with a friend of mine in one of my podcast episodes is, you know, we talk about NeoSure and you know things like that, but. It actually, NeoSure formula, uh, when premature babies are given this exclusively, can actually increase illness in premature babies. They have a longer NICU stay and things like that. Um, There's an illness that premature babies are more likely to get. And I have to remember what it is. Uh, I believe it's like necrotic, and Oh gosh, I'm gonna I'm gonna mess this. <laughs> it's called uh, NEC, uh, necrotizing enterocolitis, uh, which is something that preterm babies are more likely to have. And Neosure has been some lawsuits about about this actually. Something else that I found really interesting is that the World Health Organization has been very upfront about the formula marketing practices. In fact, they released an article in April 20 in April 28, 2022 talking about the exploitive formula milk marketing in the digital space. Um, so this article is actually going into detail about a report that they had created called The Scope and Impact of Digital Marketing Strategies for Promoting Breast Milk Substitutes. Um, and it outlines the digital marketing techniques that formula companies are using to influence feeding decisions among mothers and their families and how this has made their, its way through apps, virtual support groups, support groups, social media influencers, and competition, advice forum services, things like that. So they have infiltrated the digital space and are promoting 
breast milk feeding substitutes in those spaces. And I've seen it. One of the baby apps that I use like during my pregnancy is Baby Center. And I'll see them like promoting different like bottles and formula and and things like that in these apps. And even in the like gift bags that Target gives you for baby registries and Amazon, some of the things that they give you and those like little gift bags is always like coupons for formula or formula samples and things like that. There is an interesting quote in the article. Again, this article is called WHO reveals shocking extent of exploitive formula milk marketing. In this article, there is a quote from a Dr. Francesca Branca, who is the director of World Health Organization Nutrition and Food and Safety Department. And one of the things that they said that I found really interesting was the promotion and commercial use of formula. This doctor says that this should have been terminated decades ago. Um, The fact that formula milk companies are now employing even more powerful and insidious marketing techniques to drive up their sales is inexcusable and must be stopped. So I found that very interesting to read. And if you guys want to read more about that article and take a look at the report that the World Health Organization made about the digital marketing strategies, which is great for bringing awareness to what they're doing. You guys can take a look at that. It'll be in the show notes. So they put in a lot of education about formula and the educational books that they give to pediatricians and medical school. And me and Dr. Newman talked a lot about this um, and how a lot of pediatricians, most pediatricians, know very little information about breastfeeding because they're not really taught it. Um, And so you guys can take a look or take a listen to that episode where we talk more about that. So professionally, it's part of my ethical responsibility to protect breastfeeding. So you guys know that, or some of you guys know that I'm a certified lactation counselor. And one of my, you know, ethical responsibilities is to protect breastfeeding. Um, All and as far as I know, all of the lactation professional organizations require that their professionals follow the WHO code of breast milk substitutes. And honestly, especially during the formula shortage, I did actually see a lot of lactation professionals violating that code um, where they're promoting formula or downplaying the benefits of breastfeeding or or downplaying the risk of formula feeding. And that's actually something that we are not supposed to be doing. Doing so violates the WHO code. It also violates our responsibility to protect breastfeeding. We also can't ignore the fact, this, this is an important fact. And I hear from a lot of people that, you know, all, you know, all babies can't breastfeed, not all moms can breastfeed things like that, but no one wants to talk about that not all babies can take formula (laughs) for a variety of different reasons. Um, And most of those reasons are because they're having a reaction to the the formula itself. Babies can be allergic to formula and the hypoallergenic formula that they have created is actually extremely expensive. Very, very expensive. And no one is really kind of bringing that to the forefront of things. And I actually talked with Dr. Trill 
in my episode about breastfeeding babies with allergies. And we talked a little bit about this topic, um, about babies actually being allergic to formula. And, you know, babies could be allergic to the cow milk protein, which is what a lot of formula here in America is made from. It's made from cows. Babies can be allergic to some of the ingredients in formula, which I don't know if they put labels. It's been a long time since my babies have had formula on the the formula. But my son actually was allergic to formula. He would break out in hives every time he drank it. And my my son was majority of the breast breastfed. So this actually helps increase like lengthen our breastfeeding journey um, to about 16 months until I got pregnant. Now, another article that I think you guys will find very interesting is this article that I found um, on the United States Lactation Consultant Association. And this article is titled, It is Time for the American Academy of Pediatrics to Stop Taking Money from formula companies. Again, I will leave this in the show notes so you guys can take a look at it. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I did want you guys to hear this part in the article. So it says the American Academy of Pediatrics, also known as AAP, one of the most respected professional organizations in the world, strongly advocates exclusive breastfeeding for the first six months of life and encourages women to continue to nurse through 12 months and beyond. Um, they've recently changed their stance on the 12 months. It's now two years. They're late, but at least they have caught up <laughs> with everyone else. Continuing, oddly, the AAP, both at the national and state level, accept money from formula companies for advertising and sponsorship of meetings. Both the AAP and the formula companies are complicit in violating of the 2016 WHO Maternal Infant and Young Child Guidance on ending the inappropriate promotion of foods for infants and young children, which states that formula companies should not sponsor meetings of health professionals or scientific meetings. The acceptance of funding from formula companies is clearly incompatible with the promotion of breastfeeding. All right, some interesting stuff here. So yeah, their American Academy of Pediatrics does accept funding from formula companies. So it's interesting to see not only how the the United States government has been a huge player in the promotion of formula. The WHO code actually, when it was presented, the United States was the only one to vote against it, right? Interesting. So not only is our government a part of this, the very organization that is supposed to promote infant health is also in handshaking realms of the formula companies. So the formula companies are very, very smart in their marketing tactics. Um, They've got their hands in almost every aspect. Welcome to being (laughs) red-pilled. Yeah, follow the money. Always follow the money. So give you guys a second to take all that information in because it was a whole lot. And then the next topic we're going to talk about will also open your mind and eyes to different things. So what is that next topic? (laughs) Let's talk about the risks of sudden infant death syndrome. And what does that have to do with anything, right? Formula actually increases the risk of sudden infant death 
syndrome. And if you don't believe me, because <laughs> there might be some doubters out there, let's talk about a article from the American Academy of Pediatrics. Yes, yes, they have something to say about it. If you don't believe me, you may sort of believe the American Academy of Pediatrics. So they released an article March 1st, 2009. Um, this article is called, Does Breastfeeding Reduce the Risk of Sudden Infant Death Syndrome? And this will be in the show notes for you guys. I want to talk about the results of the study um, and then the conclusion they got to. So the results from the study is that a total of 49.6% of cases and 82.9% of controls were breastfed at two weeks of eight. Exclusive breastfeeding at one month of age have the, halved the risk. Partial breastfeeding at the age of one month also reduced the risk of sudden infant death syndrome. But after adjustments, this risk was not significant. Being exclusively breastfed in the last month of life before the interview reduced the risk, as did being partially breastfed. Breastfeeding survival curves showed that both partial breastfeeding and exclusive breastfeeding were associated with reduced risk of sudden infant death syndrome. The conclusions that they came to was that this, show, this study shows that breastfeeding reduced the risk of sudden infant death syndrome by 50% at all ages throughout infancy. We recommend including the advice to breastfeed through six months of age in sudden infant death syndrome risk reduction messages. Very interesting article from the American Academy of Pediatrics. Great. Awesome. Now, what I really did find interesting in this article was the comment section. The comment section is something that kind of raised my eyebrows. And the reason why is because this person actually made a very interesting point. And it's something that I have noticed as well. And I'm just really happy to see that other people also notice. So this commenter, her name is Dawn, says, when research is done, the convention is to use the biological default as the null hypothesis. Since human beings are mammals, our own milk would be the default. In that case, we must talk about the relative risk of feeding humans infant formula. Sadly, this study will most likely be reported with headlines that say breastfeeding reduces SIDS. And most readers will never even have the opportunity to consider that with breastfeeding as the null hypothesis, the headline should instead read formula increases risk and by a considerable amount. This is going to come into play in a lot of different things. When we're reading these research articles, and I did a great session with Amanda Hopkins on like research and things like that, but when we're talking about headlines and things like that, what how the headline reads is kind of important, right? In all truthfulness, right? Because we all, you know, by default, babies should be breastfed. And so when we're actually introducing formula, parents need to be educated on the risk of doing so. So accurately, yes, this formula, I mean, this article should say that formula feeding increases the risk of SIDS. Really interesting. Something else I wanted to briefly mention is that... When we're talking about sudden infant death syndrome, a lot of the uh, SIDS risk reduction messages, it does now include that breastfeeding does decrease the risk, which it really should say formula increases the risk 
of SIDS, if we're going to be honest, right? They also talk about safe sleep. And I have also included an article from the American Breastfeeding Medicine uh, Organization about safe sleep. Um, that article talks about how safe sleep is beneficial to the breastfeeding relationship and increases the duration of breastfeeding among the mother-baby dyad. So they're more likely to continue breastfeeding, right? Which is really important, especially if we're talking about how protective breastfeeding is, making sure that people are breastfeeding for as long as possible. Something else that I briefly mentioned is that many hospitals are now including babies in the same room as mothers. Um, and in fact, one of the messages in the SIDS risk reduction messages is that babies should be kept in the same room as mothers because this increases breastfeeding. It also has been included in those messages that, that keeping the babies in the same room also reduces the risk of SIDS. Now, when we talk about how we're formulating <laughs> the title of these things, what it should actually say is that separation may increase the risk of SIDS in babies. So it is actually recommended that babies sleep in the same room and as close to moms. And in fact, the American Breastfeeding Medicine Organization has stated that bed sharing, when done safely, because it can be done safely, is beneficial to the breastfeeding. So you guys can read that article. I hope you guys find it interesting. This has been so much fun. <laughs> I hope you guys are having I hope you guys enjoyed part one of why I can't ethically promote formula feeding. And I hope you are eager for part two. So that episode will air next week. So I air my episodes on Saturday mornings. You guys can go check the that episode out next week. And I hope that you're excited to hear the other half of all of this and it will be interesting as I talk about some of the risks of formula and uh, some of the things that are medically indicated to use formula and what is also not medically indicated when we're talking about using formula. So be excited, be eager, come back next week, make sure that you subscribe to this podcast so that you can get a notification when the next episode is out. I hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast episode. But remember, our journey together is far from its conclusion. Ensure you tap that notification bell to stay in the loop about upcoming episodes. Don't forget the valuable resources waiting for you in the podcast description. Also, do you love this podcast? Show your love by leaving a stellar five-star review spreading the word across your social circles, or even becoming a listener supporter, contributing financially to sustain this podcast existence. If a specific topic tickles your fancy or you aspire to be a guest on our show, don't hesitate to submit your ideas via the link in the podcast description. And to all you incredible women who are expecting or planning to conceive, I'm well aware that fears around childbirth can be overwhelming. From concerns about hospital procedures to coping mechanisms during labor, I've got your back. What's even better is that you can now access your free guide on mastering five techniques to conquer the fear of birth. As a bonus, discover a collection of mindfulness tools curated to quell anxiety and fear during pregnancy and childbirth. 
The guide's link awaits you in the podcast description. Live long, loud, and in prosperity, dear members of the Rebel Birth crew. Until we cross paths again, thrive unapologetically.